Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I'm your host, Kim Arnold, and welcome to Truth Love, where we discuss life's issues and the truth of God's word and love without judgment or condemnation. Hey, good day, everybody. This is Kim with Truth Love and welcome to the show. I am excited. I'm I'm getting ready to start a three-part series uh, on the truth about systemic racism and its consequences. And got a lot of information to cover, but there's so much information that I would never be able to disseminate it to you in the way that I want to. It's just entirely too much. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make available a lot of different information on the Truth Love website. So take a look at the website and there'll be information there that you can read up on your leisure um, at the things that we'll be talking about today. So this is a series that um, I think a lot of people find it hard to discuss, but nevertheless, we still need to discuss these things. And you know, the show is called Truth Love. So I want to come with the truth and in love. And the only way we ever get to resolve in anything in life is to really have not just conversations, but usually it's the hard conversations. So so I want to talk about the things that have divided our nation, things that we may be afraid to talk about in mixed company, but I'm going to talk about them. And These are the things that we need to remember. These are things that are on the heart of God. God is always concerned about the oppressed uh, and the poor. And so we're going to discuss these things. And I'm going to welcome your feedback and challenge you with some questions at the end as well. So today we're going to present a bunch of factual information as it relates to systemic racism. So we as believers, and if you're not a believer, that's fine too. So we can ponder these things and ask ourselves, what is our responsibility and how are we supposed to respond? I think that to be a very important question, especially in today's climate. Now, I'm really excited because I have got an incredible guest who is going to be talking with me who on the first two series that we're going to do. And the first one is racism in the justice system. So our expert today is Dr. Emmanuel Acusic. She is the assistant professor of English and Africana Studies and the co-director of Africana Studies program at Muhlenberg College. She is a scholar of the 20th century and contemporary African-American literatures and American literatures global black literature, Holocaust literature, genocide literature, human rights literature, and comparative race and ethnic studies. Her interdisciplinary research explores the intersection of literature, race, genocide, and human rights violations. And it has a particular focus on how black populations have used the concept of genocide to write about anti-black violence. Dr. Cusick received her PhD and her master's in English from Princeton University, along with a doctoral graduate certificate in African American studies. 
and she received her BA with highest distinction, and some universities would call that summa cum laude, and Phi Beta Kappa Chi is, is in her uh, possession as well. And she received those from the University of North Carolina. So as you guys can see, we have got an incredible expert, and I'm excited to just jump right in and begin to ask her um, questions. And I, I, I'm going to start off, and again, we're, we're talking about racism and the criminal justice system. And, and again, it's not just racism, we're talking about systemic racism. You know, when people say, oh, this is racist, that's racist, this is racist, those things may be true, but we want to go back to the origin of when these things first started. So often, well-meaning people say that slavery ended, hey, Kim, and everything is okay. Uh, but let we got to take a look at what happened after the emancipation and racism has how racism has continued to be perpetuated, okay? Particularly regarding mass incarceration. So Dr. Cusick, are you with me? I am. Thank you so much for having me, Kim. I'm honored and excited to be here and hello to all of your listeners. Oh, thank you. We are excited, trust me, to have you. I know I'm going to get a lot of feedback uh, from this issue. So I just want to dive right in based on when I was talking about, you know, what happened after the emancipation in reference to the criminal justice system? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I want to start by saying that your introduction is so crucial in understanding the context and framework in which we're having these conversations, which is not to assign blame or to be antagonistic, but to lay out the facts, because there are a lot of facts people don't know about how systemic racism functions. And one of the main ways that systemic racism continues in the United States is through the criminal justice system and or the criminal injustice system might be a better way to phrase it. And mass incarceration is a huge part of that. So before even going into that, I think just defining what is mass incarceration, it's a term we hear all the time, but what does it actually mean? Right. So in, in simple terms, it essentially means the United States incarcerates more people than any other nation in the world. And the United States disproportionately incarcerates black people and communities of color. And in trying to understand that, understand how did we get there? One of the most important things to understand is, as you said, what happened after emancipation? So there are a lot of things that happened in the vein of systemic racism right. after emancipation. Uh, but one of the most crucial for understanding mass incarceration today is a system called convict leasing. So after emancipation, the a lot of southern states instituted what were called black codes. Wait, wait, and wait, essentially, wait, 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 black codes. Oh, what ahead. is black codes? I know you're going to tell us, but black <laughs> codes, really? Yeah. So what they were were laws that basically continued slavery. So what a, a lot of people don't realize is that the 13th Amendment outlawed slavery except as punishment for a crime. So what that means is that the black codes took that loophole and created a system in which they were able to keep black people in subordinate positions through a series of laws 
what they did was they criminalized things such as vagrancy, which is homelessness, loitering, and things like not carrying proof of employment. Okay, wait a minute. So, so I've got to jump in again, Dr. Cusick, okay? Yeah. So vagrancy is criminalized, right? So if you're homeless, yep. what you're telling me is you can be arrested and, Absolutely. and put into jail and forced kind of back out into a, I'm going to let you finish, but forced out back into a slave-like system just for being homeless. Absolutely. Okay, go ahead. Absolutely. Go ahead. And it's, it's, so being homeless and then also, as I said, loitering and not having proof of employment. And so remember, this is right after emancipation. Black people aren't getting hired in mass or anything like that. So not having proof of employment being criminalized right. is a very easy way to imprison massive amounts of black people. So what happened was for these quote unquote crimes, black people were pushed into the convict leasing system in which Southern states leased prisoners to private railways, mines and large plantations. It was also a particularly brutal form of essentially enslavement. States profited off of this labor. Prisoners earned no pay and thousands of black people were forced into what scholars today call slavery by another name. And a byproduct of this, in addition to incarcerating so many black people, was the creation of a myth that we still see today, which is the criminal black person, the association of crime with blackness, because black people are being imprisoned at such high rates. But it's not because they're com they're committing crimes at high rates. It's because the crimes are things such as not having proof of employment, but you're also not being given the opportunity to get a job or loitering. So the origins of these myths of the criminal black person start there, as does the system of mass incarceration. Okay. And, you know, that led into what we're more familiar with, which is Jim Crow laws, the lynching era, which also continued this notion of the dangerous black person and justified not only incarceration, but killing black people. And then we have the more common or the more commonly known eras, which the civil rights movement overturned Jim Crow legislation. But then in the same way that emancipation did not solve the core of the mm -hmm. problem of slavery, which is racism, the civil rights movement didn't solve the core of the problem of Jim Crow or convict leasing, which is also systemic racism. So then we got the war on drugs, which led us to where we are today. Okay, so I've, wow, you gave a lot here to unpack and try to process. You know, when we talk about um, the mass incarceration system being perpetuated and we look back to, you know, you, you can end up in jail and then end up being leased out for being homeless or not having a job, right? Right. So there was no one who was going to hire you and you had no one to live, nowhere to live, because you didn't have exactly. a home. So it made matters worse then because now uh, you're not a, a, a property owned by a slave owner who's looking to take care of you because you're of value that way, right? It's just a leasing system. And then when you talk about, you know, the lynchings and Jim Crow, it we can see the line of continued really mass incarceration of what we're talking about, the in, incarceration of black people in many ways. Now, you mentioned um, the war on drugs, right? 
So I know that um, this was started by Reagan, I believe, uh, who started the war on, no, no, Nixon, right? Okay, thank you. Yeah, you're going to correct me. Thank you. It was started by Nixon, but, you know, Reagan came in and went to town, uh, for lack of a right. better words, right? And again, I'm not criticizing anybody. It's what Dr. Cusick said. We are just given the facts here today, right? So I want you to tell us about the effects of President Reagan's expanded war on drugs uh, policies and campaign, and how did that affect mass incarcerations? Um, you know, it sounds like maybe a lot of people could have been locked up for nonviolent crimes. Right. Okay. And so tell us about that. And, and also, Dr. Cusick, tell us about things that people lose when they're locked up, uh, you know, incarcerated, the benefits that we lose in this country as a U.S. citizen. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot in the question. So I can start with just sort of the background on the war on drugs. And so as I was saying earlier, the mass incarceration is it's a problem in general. The United States, as I said, incarcerates more people than any other nation. So just to give some numbers, according to the Prison Policy Initiative, which is an organization that tracks prison data around the world, the United States incarcerates approximately 698 per 100,000 people. Now, for some comparative numbers, because I know I do best with comparisons, numbers mean nothing to right, me on their exactly. own. Iceland incarcerates approximately 38 per 100,000 people. Wow. And if we want an example of a country closer to us, Canada incarcerates approximately 114 per 100,000. So the United States, 698 per 100,000, and Canada is at 114, and then Iceland's at 38. So we are so disproportionately high in our incarceration. And then the ways that black people are incarcerated is is absolutely disproportionate to their percentage of the population. They are incarcerated at more than five times the rates of white people overall. And it's not because they're committing more crimes or more violent crimes. As you said, it's because sentencing, particularly for drug offenses, is disproportionately applied to mm. black people. How, how all the disproportionately way back to, to black. So, you know, tell, tell, I know you're going to tell me about that. And I, I'm sorry, I keep jumping in because you're giving me some great information where I, I have to kind of take a second look. So how does that happen? How is it that um, you're black, African-American, whatever term people are using out there, and and there's such a huge disparity? How, how does that happen? Yeah. So today, in terms of the disparity, just to get some basic facts out there, white and black Americans, according to contemporary studies, have almost identical rates of drug use. White populations have slightly higher rates of selling drugs. However, the imprisonment rate for drug charges is almost six times higher for black Americans Whoa. than for white people. Six, hey, six times, times higher. higher. So this started with the war on drugs. And what happened was or actually it's all of it started with convict leasing and with enslavement, as we said, but it was continued through the, the war on drugs. So basically in 1971, President Nixon announced a war on drugs. He said, we're going to be cracking down on drug use. And what he did was a couple things. 
he connected drug use with criminality first off. Mm. And so the idea was drug users are causing crimes. And then he connected drug use with black communities. So then you have, okay, not only are drug users causing crimes, but black people are the drug users causing crimes. So the solution to make quote unquote America safe is to incarcerate black people. Yeah. But I, you gotta tell me he, all right. I, I know you've got an answer for me again, but so he's equating these issues into the black neighborhoods or towards black people. Yeah. How, how is that happening? Tell me what, what does that mean? How, well, how? what they did, they created sentencing for drugs that they found in black communities and they created extremely harsh sentences. And so for drugs that they found on the streets in black neighborhoods, all of a sudden you can get massive sentences for that. But for drugs that tended to be found in white communities, you were not receiving sentences. So for instance, black communities who used crack were incarcerated for very long periods of time. Upper middle class white communities who used cocaine were receiving either little to no sentence. Today, we see this in opiate use, which is prevalent in upper middle class white societies. Not very many jail sentences being handed out for that, even for distributing it. Marijuana or drug selling marijuana in black communities, you have people doing 25 years to life. Wow. And for marijuana? It's important to... For, yeah, for, for marijuana. And, and now that's other, legal uh, in so many right. places. Wow. Wow, exactly. that's legal. It, so I want to I ask a couple other things, too. I want to go back to a couple of um, things that you said. So you said that uh, it was the drug use, uh, this war on drugs, it was criminalized, right? And right. now we have an opioid crisis that is in the suburbs, but it's not criminalized. Everything I hear, it is a crisis. And, you know, they talk about getting, you know, these people or young kids counseling or help, right? And again, you can point to, you know, suburbs versus an inner city and look at, you know, what is the population ethnically in these two places, uh, probably more ethnic people in an inner city, I would imagine, and more non-blacks um, in, in the suburbs. So why is one a war and why is one a crisis? Right, a, a public health crisis. So a couple things that I want to note about that. So first, I want to say that the way that I think the country has been responding to the opiate crisis as a crisis, as a public health problem as something where we need to get federal rehabilitation centers. We need to focus on rehabilitation and health instead of criminalizing. That is Mm. the correct response. I think it's important to note that what activists who point out these disparities are saying is not that we should be criminalizing people who use opiates, but that that caring public health rehabilitation oriented strategy should be applied to black communities as well. So the response is not saying, oh, let's throw opiate users and middle class white populations in jail. What we're saying is let's take the we're showing we can respond with compassion right. That's to exactly drug use. Right. We, we can understand it. So let's take that 
mentality and apply it to black people. Why are black people being thrown in prison cells for drug use and white populations are being treated counseling Counseling and treated exactly so rehabilitation and oh also in addition to drug use another thing that's important to note is that with criminalizing drug selling a lot of the times what police do is in inner cities drug dealing often happens on the streets and street corners so police find that easier to raid Mm -hmm. to criminalize in upper middle class white neighborhoods, drug distribution tends to happen behind closed doors in suburbs, which people find police find require more resources to investigate, more elaborate to investigate. And they so they don't. And then you add in factor in racism to that as well. And those crimes are not investigated, despite, as I said, studies showing that those situations actually have higher rates of drug distribution. But Along the same lines of the country responding to white drug users with more compassion, the country also has not considered for a lot of people in inner city communities selling drugs. It's a way to survive, to make money in a an environment where you're not able, you, the jobs are poverty you, wage. You can't go find, you know, poverty waged. And, and you know, this is not... Uh, you know, giving a shout out to go sell drugs by any means, right. but it's saying, hey, poverty wages or no wages. There's, sometimes right. there are just no jobs. And, you know, people, as, you know, we have this thing that's within us, it's called a survival mode, right? So if it's about feeding your children or whatever, I think everybody can understand that a lot of people go into survival mode. Now, we're not saying that that's what everyone is doing is survival no, mode. But, but I want to back up again, if I could. Again, I told our listeners, there is way too much information uh, that uh, we could never give you. But want to give you a bunch of facts. And again, they're going to be on the website that you can go and look up. Again, because we're talking about truthful facts. So when we talk about systemic racism that has been perpetuated down through the years, it is important to know what that means. And these facts are very important. So Dr. Cusick, I want to go back to, uh, I got a question that I I wanted to ask you that that I didn't. So you talked about uh, some of the disparities um, within the sentencing. Um, for different drugs uh, that are out there. And I want to talk about, you know, because we were talking about mass incarceration and and how that's just been perpetuated, right? So what uh, mass incarceration that came out of the war on drugs, specifically that campaign, right? It I've heard it's been called the new Jim Crow, Right. I've heard that saying, "Okay, massive incarceration. This is the new Jim Crow. Can you explain uh, to me and our listeners? I I did. I read that uh, in a in a clipping in a book. And I'd love for you to explain what what that means. Yeah, that's an excellent question. And actually, to answer that, I'm going to back up a little bit first to give a quote along the lines of what you were saying about just providing facts from regarding the war on drugs that actually lays out in explicit detail Mm. what happened and then explain how that is the new Jim Crow. So in John Ehrlichman, 
was Nixon's aide on domestic affairs. And he is quoted by Dan Baum as saying the following, and this is a direct quote, and this is about the war on drugs. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war, the Vietnam War, or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Okay. So in this quote, you oh. have pretty much everything you need to know laid out, which also it's important to note the lying about the drugs, because in addition to disproportionate sentencing, you also had a very high exaggeration of drug use. You had drugs being planted in communities, and then you had exaggeration of how much drug use there was, people who weren't using drugs, being oh. incarcerated. Okay, and I want to ask you something, or not really ask you something. I want to just say something here uh, so our listeners understand. When we talk about the war on drugs, as Dr. Husick said, that was really uh, the foundation, I guess we could say, right, was laid under Nixon. And it was laid down right. uh, with, I guess, racism in mind. Uh, what yeah. would we say? I mean, so the foundation of that war on drugs um, was laid down with uh you know, really a racist foundation against uh, not just hippies, but black people, right? Uh, and that's, again, to our listeners, we're talking about systemic racism that has been perpetuated. And Dr. Cusick has done an amazing job talking about this from the emancipation, talking about it, um, you know, post-World War II, all the way into today. And I know I interrupted, and I'm sorry, I just wanted to to clarify that this was the foundation. And then we have a president that comes in behind it. And I remember, I'm gonna tell my age here, I guess, but I was in high school and I could remember some of the advertisements. And I remember one specifically, and it said this, if you are a casual drug user, we're coming for you. And I remember thinking, right. oh, they're not going for the uh, dealers or, you know, the big guys, whatever they call them, they're just going for the casual users. So yeah. with that in mind too, um, so if they're going after casual users, blacks, hippies, whoever they're going after, right? That's probably quite a few people. What did that do to our incarceration system? What did? Yeah. So and this is why it's called the new Jim Crow. So under Reagan, after Nixon, the prison population exploded and pretty much doubled. And wait, that, wait, 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 it has doubled from when? From all time? To from, yeah. So we have Reagan comes in and according to most scholars, the prison population was around 329,000. When he left office just eight years later, it's around 627,000. Wow. That is a massive increase in wow. eight years. And so what the new Jim Crow is, is related to all of this. So the term was coined by Michelle Alexander, who's a legal scholar. She wrote a book called The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness in 2010. And essentially her argument is that 
much of the popular discourse says that systemic racism was perpetuated through Jim Crow and then ended through civil rights legislation. Mm. But in fact, the racial hierarchies that were put in place by the Jim Crow laws, she is arguing are continued through the war on drugs and the war on drugs is now the primary vehicle through which the disenfranchisement, the oppression of black communities continues. And she says that basically in order to really unravel mass incarceration, we have to attack it as a racial justice issue Yeah, in the same way that Jim Crow could not be untangled without explicitly naming it as a race problem, but mass incarceration often isn't talked about that way. And so she says, this is our Jim Crow today, and we have to talk about it as a racial justice issue. Well, let, let me say this, that that is very good. And, um, you know, I have the book, uh, The New Jim Crow. I just started reading it, recommend it to anybody out there. I got the yes. Kindle edition because I when I travel I, I I like a paperback book but sometimes I got to have my books with me right so the reason I say that's an amazing statement is because again I'm, I'm focused still on that quote uh, by the gentleman in Nixon's administration who says you know were we lying of course we were and so anytime something is built on a non-truth, right? And then that just gets mm-hmm. perpetuated. Just as you said, I, I mean, I'm blown away uh, by so many of the different things that you have told us here today. So, go, but go ahead. I want to, we're going to close up here, but I want you to finish out. Cause I think what question did I have? No, I think I got, I did. I, I did ask about, I think, everything I wanted to. Let me see. I had a couple of questions. Yeah. I know we had talked a little, you and I, we, I could talk about if you want. We talked a little bit about how some of the injustices in the criminal justice system spill out into, yeah, that's say, what police it was. stops. That's what it was. That and then what it means to actually go in. So I'm going to just say this and then I'm going to let you close it out and then I will close us out officially. Right. But I had said that, um, you know, if someone goes in, you you know, you were saying that some people got sentenced major sentences for marijuana, which we now find legal, uh, in so many States. Right. But now these people come out of prison, right. With, and they're now, is that a felony? I guess. I think it depends on the state. state. Okay. So if it's a felony and you know, I'll look that one up. Cause I just thought of that right now. Me then too. Does, then it prohibits uh, these people from certain benefits, like even just voting. Right? right. So go ahead, you go ahead and, and tell us what you were going to say. Well, yeah, no, that's so important to think about. And the way that people's civil rights are revoked for this. And it's almost impossible to find a job after incarceration, particularly if it is a felony conviction. So then again, you are forcing people back into the very thing that you incarcerated them for, because if you're selling drugs because you're struggling to find money pre-incarceration, you are definitely going to be struggling to find money post-incarceration. Exactly. So that is one of the biggest problems with recidivism, that we're not actually fixing the structures of the problem. We're just criminalizing people and then profiting off the prison industry. And that's, you know, it's uh, it's catastrophic. It's absolutely devastating black communities. And so 
that's just really important to focus on. As you said, what happens when people get out? And the other thing I think we had been talking about was how does all of this affect some of the other things in the news, such as police brutality, mm. right? We, yes. You know, along the lines of you were talking about a divided nation. I think police brutality and the protests we've seen this summer have been really at the forefront of the nation's mind. And something that's really important to note, this is in conversation along the same lines of the criminal black person myth. The black people are disproportionately targeted um, by police, disproportionately end up being killed. And one of the primary ways that these encounters begin, they're not violent, as people think they're not drug bust or things like that. One of the most common precursors to black people being killed by the police are traffic stops. Mm, Yeah. And these are just a nonviolent, you know, you're just driving. Yes. Just driving. So you have Walter Scott, for instance, in South Carolina in 2015 was shot in the back for being pulled over for a broken taillight. And a, I think it was a 2018 article found that victims of police killings were 32% of them were black, which is massively disproportionate when you consider that black people are 13% of the population. And additionally, black victims were the most likely to be unarmed. So approximately 15% of black victims of fatal shootings were unarmed versus 9% of white victims. So black people essentially are most likely to be unarmed and the most likely to be killed. Killed. And it's all part of this myth we've been talking about since enslavement and emancipation, which is the criminal black person, the dangerous black person, all of which is grounded in lies and mythology. But it's having really damaging effects from mass incarceration to killing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as you were speaking, um, I was trying to find out I was Googling about uh, the law for marijuana. And uh, I had gotten on the uh, page of a federal law, and I'm not for sure, so no one quote me on this. This is not on a government website, but on a, a an attorney's website. It was just saying that in under federal law, uh, to possess is uh, a misdemeanor. But if you, uh, a second arrest for possession then becomes a felon. And the reason I bring this up again is just because this is now legal in so many places. And unfortunately, we have uh, people um, who are still sitting behind bars uh, for something that is actually legal today. Um, And so I find that just over the top. So I want to say this in closing. It's what Dr. Cusick said, you know, and as we we talked again, keep that, the, the phrase systemic racism, you know, that has been perpetuated over time and the effects that it can have on any community. Uh, we happen to be talking about the black African-American community and it's had, un, you know, just the consequences have been dire. Um, the, how it affects a family you know, if you go in and you, you have a drug possession and you've made a mistake and you come out and you can't get a job or a place to live, what do you do? You know, right. and as a Christian, I know that the Lord says we are to forgive and to keep moving. 
you know, and so what I want to ask our Christian brothers and sisters today as I'm closing out, what, you know, we, I'm not just having this episode just to be having it, but to say, okay, here's the truth. How is our response? What is our response to be in love? I would ask you to go away uh, and, and, and pray literally and say, Lord, you know, what do you want me to do about this? Is there somewhere that I can help? And I don't mean like within the criminal justice system. If you want to go do that, do that. But you know what I've found, Dr. Cusick, is that I have to absolutely um, go and um, I have to go and get um, at my dinner table, you know, other people, uh, people who uh, know me and know me well, right? And so with that in mind, that's what I'm encouraging our listeners to do. Why don't you go and meet with somebody that you don't really know, right? Somebody of a different ethnicity and get to know one another. God has um, things that he would want us to do, and they, they we shouldn't be doing things all the time with people who just look like us. So Thank you for joining us today, and I want to thank Dr. Cusick for being here. She's going to be back again uh, next week because we have one more um, episode on, you know, systemic racism uh, to just inform our viewers and uh, about truthful things, but in love. And then I'm going to follow that up with a a, a third. Uh, it's not. It's part of the series, but. Um, it's different. I'm going to talk about what is the church's response um, in these things? What should the church be doing? All right. I thank everybody for joining us today, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on Truth Love, where our mission is always to speak God's truth in love as we follow Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life.